Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Have you ever felt like you're standing alone? Well, this is the title of Dr. Newfeld's message today from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, from his new series entitled Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. I remember being taught a song about Daniel when I was a young boy. First line went like this, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone. Now I know that our culture has idealized the person who stands alone. And some of you might remember the old Western movies where the hero rides into town and stands alone against all the bad guys. Or we see some of the modern action movies where the hero, armed with only a knife and a few martial arts tricks, kills all the hundreds of bad guys who are using everything from guns and grenades and tanks and, you know, even nuclear bombs to stop him. But of course, they can't stop the good guy. You know, in these movies, the hero always wins whatever battles he has and always wins the love of a beautiful woman. But the truth is that standing alone doesn't usually end that way. Most people who stand alone are easily defeated. Our society is filled with lonely and desperate people who desperately do not wish to stand alone. No one wants to stand alone. Everyone wants friends. I suppose that's why so many people are influenced by the crowd. You know, one of the things I remember telling my parents when when I was a teenager was that everyone's doing it. I thought if they only understood that everyone's doing it, that, that, well, they'd let me do it too. And they should surely understand that the last thing a sensitive, self-esteem-lacking teenager wanted was to be outside the group. But amazingly, they didn't seem to understand my perspective. They seemed unmoved and said things like, well, if everyone's going to jump off a bridge, would you want to do that too? And I remember thinking, well, you know, everybody's doing it. Maybe I do. So many of us are influenced by the crowd. The reason we find it hard to share our faith is, is not because we don't believe the faith, but because we're intimidated by the pressure to conform. And in that case, no one is doing it. And, and doing something that no one is doing seems to say that we're standing alone. And most of us don't want to stand alone. And the reason some Christians don't pray in thankfulness for their meal at a restaurant is that we don't want to appear odd and be left alone. And the reason we don't tell a non-Christian that that we'd like to pray for them after they've told us of a need in their lives is because we're suspicious that if we start praying aloud, they're going to think that we're crazy. So many of us are influenced by the crowd. It's so hard to stand alone. Well, Daniel 6 introduces us to the well-known story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, we're told, was a man who was willing to stand alone. His choice to remain faithful to his God meant that he had no one standing with him. For all of you who have ever stood alone because of your commitment to Christ, this text will be of great comfort and of encouragement. But Daniel 6 is also for all who have never stood alone out of principle and wonder if it's worth the risk. See, Daniel's story teaches us that when we stand alone with God, we're never alone. God is with us. But Daniel's story teaches us something else. It teaches us that there can be marvelous benefits that come to us when we stand alone out of our commitment to God. So let's begin to read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the documents and the injunction. And in order to put this chapter in context, let's notice several things. First of all, King Belshazzar of Babylon was dead. city of Babylon had fallen to the Medo-Persians, and now Darius the Mede was in charge, reporting back to Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian Empire. The status of the city was no longer in doubt. Secondly, I want you to note that Daniel was now probably an 83-year-old man. He was taken as an exile out of Jerusalem somewhere around the age of 14 and had given his life to political service in his adopted home. By now, he had no Jewish accent. His clothes were no doubt Babylonian. His lifestyle must have made him very similar to his colleagues. Given his long and distinguished political career, you might expect that he had many friends and allies, and undoubtedly he did. Notice that he's one of three administrators who were in charge of 120 lesser officials who ran Babylon under the authority of the new world power, the Medo-Persian Empire. Clearly, even at his advanced age, Daniel was the most gifted of the three administrators, so he was going to make chief over everyone. The text doesn't say why he was hated, but he was. The other two administrators and the 120 lesser officials all met together in secret to conspire against him. Since he remained ignorant of this, I assume that he had not many friends in that bunch. He was roundly hated. He had not one ally among 122 leading politicians in the nation. He was truly alone. And that one fact does tell us that being in the minority does not mean that one is wrong. We're reminded that it was the majority who agreed to crucify Christ. We're reminded that it was the majority in Israel who decided that the apostles were never to speak in the name of Jesus again. The question is never how many people stand against you or how many stand with you. The question is always whether you stand with God. Let the scripture, the ways of God guide you and let man slander you for what can they do? Jesus himself warned that for as long as we fear man, we cannot be the servants of God. And thirdly, I want you to notice Daniel's political record. Verse 4 contains a telling phrase when it informs us that the only complaint they could find against Daniel was in regard to his God. See, this tells us that in their hatred of Daniel, they were looking for a way to condemn him. Had they have found another means of sabotaging him, they would have used that. But note this, whatever reason they gave, in reality, men who seek to destroy others never give the true reason for their actions. But verse 4 gives us a hint of why Daniel stood alone. I don't doubt that many of the men who served in political office in Babylon were corrupt, 
Daniel was not. When others lied to the king for their political advantage, well, Daniel refused. When others lined their pockets with graft and corruption, Daniel did not. When others were negligent in carrying out their duties, Daniel was thorough and careful in his duties. We live in a day when political corruption is almost expected. Just imagine a modern-day politician who has numerous political enemies who decide they will bring scandal against him. How precious it is when their enemies pressed or searched that there would be no corruption or negligence found. See, one of the reasons many mistrust politicians today is because of the many scandals to which we are constantly being made aware. How heartbreaking it is to think that a whole generation of young people believe that everyone in leadership is corrupt. They expect corruption and negligence and think that the only reason some have not been convicted for corruption is because they've never been caught. The amount of cynicism in our day is altogether appalling. I'll tell you a story about that. I remember many years ago, Billy Graham being the subject of an intense investigation to find out if there were any scandals in his ministry. Countless TV evangelists in that time had rightly been disgraced, and the media began to distrust any preacher who appeared on television. I remember hearing that in spite of a lengthy investigation in which Dr. Graham handed over any information that was requested, he, like Daniel, was neither corrupt nor negligent. I want you to know that that's possible. Everyone is not corrupt. There are those who actually do live according to an internal set of ethics that holds them fast when no one but God is watching. There are those who live by the golden rule. There are those who see their work as a sacred trust and live to be in service of others. Of course, that doesn't mean that honest politicians are not charged with corruption or that slander is never directed towards them. You know, in this life, the truth doesn't always win out, but sometimes it does. And in the light of eternity, the truth will always win out. And so if you stand alone because of righteousness, Jesus said, rejoice. You really are not alone. You stand with God. So can people see Christ in you because you're a truth teller? As we continue, Dr. Neufeld will talk about the importance of how we represent the reputation of God in how we live, and that's coming up next. Someone wrote to tell us, I have been inspired, moved, awed, informed, reprimanded, and encouraged by the program and Dr. Neufeld. I listen online, and sometimes I'm almost too overwhelmed to fall asleep. Well, I don't think it's our intention to keep you awake at night. But we're so blessed to hear that the teaching of God's Word is making a profound difference in the lives of our listeners. Thank you so much for taking the time, and thank you for making the program available every day with your gracious gifts. If you'd like to know more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support us with prayer or a ministry gift, please call us at 1-800-663-2425, or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Christians should be known to be free of dishonesty. In fact, many are. I know of a used car dealer who's a Christian. The word on the street about him is that you can ask him about any car in his lot and he's going to tell you the exact condition that it's in. He always tells the truth about his cars no matter what it costs him, 
because he believes he's speaking about his cars in the presence of God who knows all things. All of us should be asking God that regardless of what we do, whether we're politicians or preachers or business people or nurses and doctors, builders, computer technicians, or whatever we do, we will not be found corrupt or negligent. I believe that this could be one of the greatest legacies that we leave behind us. I'm aware that, sadly, there have been some among us that don't look like Daniel at all, that self-serving ideals are a greater motive for us than the reputation of Christ and his kingdom. May God cause deep grief in those who call on the name of Jesus and are corrupt in their dealings. Now look again at verses 6 and 7. The chief politicians are approaching Darius the king, asking him to establish an ordinance that for 30 days all prayers and petitions are to be made to the king alone. Furthermore, they tell the king that everyone has agreed to this. Now, you've got to notice that, that the king's advisors are lying to him. All the governors and advisors did not agree to this request. Well, for one, Daniel did not agree. In fact, he was not even consulted. He was being considered for the highest, second highest office in the land, and the advisors to the king met without him, conspired, lied, and misled the king into believing that this plan was also Daniel's idea. This is the thing that evil men do. They meet in secret, and their communication regarding those meetings are filled with secret and double motives. But why did Darius like the idea? Well, Darius may have felt that this was a way in which his advisors would propose to unify the kingdom. After all, when a new empire first begins its reign, it's always vulnerable. Why not ask for this act of devotion just so that those who served in the former Babylonian empire would express loyalty and devotion to the new government? Don't petition the gods, petition the king. If they thought any of their prayers to Darius were answered, that would bring a greater devotion to the new regime. This really must have seemed like a, a marvelous plan of ensuring peace and stability. Darius was sure that every one of his advisors was in favor of it. He didn't know his advisors didn't care a lick about the stability of the empire. They just wanted to murder Daniel. See, faithfulness to God really can leave one standing alone. If you decide to take your calling as a Christian seriously, if you view your job as a place in which you serve God, if you determine never to be negligent or corrupt, you might find a secret power of lawlessness at work. You can be left with enemies who are determined to isolate you and defeat you. But Daniel was not only alone, he was left with circumstances which made his isolation even more severe. See, what happened next would intensify his experience of standing alone. Let's read verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You know, it may not be readily apparent to us why Daniel would insist on praying in front of an open window. Unlike the experience of his three friends years earlier, you'll remember that the incident back in Daniel 3, unlike that incident, Daniel was not being asked to bow to an idol. In fact, he was not even being asked to pray to the king. In fact, he was not being asked to do anything that might violate his conscience. He could have closed his doors and prayed in secret, and no one would have been the wiser. Why this insistence of opening his window and praying publicly with his face set toward Jerusalem? Surely he must have known he was being set up. See, in many cases, it's good for Christians not to make a big deal out of pagan practices. 
It's not our job to correct everything that violates godly principles. Now, I, for one, rarely contradict non-Christians who use the Lord's name in vain. I never correct non-Christians who don't keep the Sabbath holy. So if the people who do not know the true God want to direct all prayers to the king for a month, I mean, why correct them? It said that in the early church, there were a number of Christians who longed to be martyrs. You know, they read the scriptures about receiving a martyr's crown, and, and they wanted to be one. There are even some stories of misled Christians actually begging Roman officials for martyrdom. You know, eventually, the church had to speak out against this activity. I mean, was Daniel such a man? I mean, after a long life, was he looking to be a martyr? Well, I'm certain he was not. So why then did Daniel open his window to pray to Jerusalem? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. You know, if we were to study the later parts of Daniel, we would see that the prophets who lived before him had something significant to say. From Jeremiah, he learned that the Jewish captivity would be short. Jeremiah 29 verses 10 to 11 said, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So Daniel knew that the the days were coming when God would bring his people back to Jerusalem. He might not be a part of that event, but he knew that God had promised it. So his act of turning his face toward Jerusalem to pray was his way of saying, God, I can hardly wait until you fulfill your promise. And Daniel may also have remembered passages like the one found in 1 Kings 8, 35 to 36. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sins because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. You see, Daniel was not just praying toward Jerusalem. He was praying toward the place where the temple of God had once stood. And even though there was no temple there now, he prayed as if there was. God, would you raise it up once again? And when Daniel prayed, he prayed in keeping with God's direction surrounding prayer. It was never enough for Daniel simply to pray. He would not just pray. He would pray in God's way, in keeping with the promises God had made in humble obedience to God's word. He prayed as a Jew who hoped in the coming of the Messiah and in the fulfillment of God's promises around the temple. He prayed as one who knew and believed the word of God. For him not to pray before an open window facing toward Jerusalem would be like saying that he believed that Babylon, or now Persia, was greater than Jerusalem. But with the prophet Micah, he believed that Jerusalem was the center of the world. See, Micah 4 verses 1 to 2 says, And in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, Daniel knew that those things were true. He would never compromise on those matters, and that symbolic act of simply opening the window with his face set towards Jerusalem told him and reminded him of the promise of God. It's this prayer of Daniel that tells us more about him than anything else. 
It tells us that although he was faithful and never negligent in his duties to Babylon, his hope was not in Babylon. His hope was in Jerusalem and the the promises that God had made toward that place. He never misplaced his priorities. His prayer life kept him centered, and he would never stop even under the threat of death. You know what this tells us, why Daniel stood alone. He was being isolated by people who could never imagine that his hope was not in this world. For people who struggle to get ahead in this world, such a perspective, the one that Daniel had, is not even possible to them. But that's who we are. See, all of us must remember that we're not in the new Jerusalem yet. Wherever we live, we are still in Babylon. And so even while we are called upon to bless Babylon in whatever way we can, this is not our home. We are strangers in a strange land, but our windows are open toward Jerusalem, remembering the promises of God of a country that will never pass away. That's why we sing the Lord's song in a strange land. That's why we speak of the new Jerusalem even while we live here. And in the meantime, even if it should come to pass that we stand alone, we will never be alone. For the heavenly Jerusalem has not left us as orphans. Indeed, our heritage is rich. The same God who is the God over Jerusalem is also the God of Babylon, and we never stand alone when we stand with him. John, one of the things that comes clear to me out of what you're saying is our reluctance to stand alone here on this earth is really based upon our short-sightedness. Yeah, that's a, such an excellent insight, Ben. You know, the, the, uh, the promises that Daniel had in his day regarding the future of Jerusalem, regarding the coming of the Messiah who would stand there, uh, regarding the fulfillment of all the purposes of the ages. I mean, you think about what he was aware of, and that's what inspired him. Now let's fast forward to our day, Ben. I mean, just think about the, the many more abundant promises that we have that are all found to be true in Christ. I mean, we have now a very specific book in our Bible, the book of Revelation, which, which teaches us that Christ will come again and set up a kingdom that will never end. And we are told exactly how we enter into that kingdom. I mean, that's our hope. So let's concentrate on that. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This month, we want to offer all of our listeners a special gift. It's Dr. Neufeld's one-week series to be heard beginning next week entitled, From Creation to Creation. This series is an incredible introduction to some of the most important themes of the book of Revelation. Dr. Neufeld first taught this series only a month ago during a conference in Alaska. And now this month, we'll teach the same series, but intended specifically for our listening audience. And even greater news, this one-week series is just a sampling of a more exhaustive series that Dr. Neufeld will teach on the entire book of Revelation beginning in the new year. So make sure to get your copy on CD today. Or if you'd rather, you can hear the entire series beginning next week online at backtothebible.ca through our podcast, mobile application, or by signing up for our exclusive audio mail. So to ask for your copy from creation to creation, or to find out more about all the ways you can listen to the daily Bible teaching program, or to support Back to the Bible Canada, call us at one 800 
1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.